0: All right. Kids, take it. But you can just hear them thumping uh, in the upstairs and screaming. Thanks. Uh, okay. Which so, view they, which view did they like? Which view did they like? <laughs> I know where I felt I was. Uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, so this is the the framework that we've been working with. Uh, if you're joining us, uh, we're thinking about how to discern things as Christians rather than just quickly leaning. Uh, towards the far left or far right. Um, And so we're leaning into the wisdom of of Christianity. Uh, And so part of that means that we're going to ask complex questions, and we're going to ask questions, um, and as we do so, we're going to think, okay, how does this fit into the biblical plot line, uh, which we have here? Uh, How might this make sense in the rule of faith? So I have the Apostles' Creed here, this confession of faith that uh, Christians have been saying for uh, centuries Uh, How does this make sense when I say the coherency of Scripture with our conviction that ultimately the Bible is not going to be uh, full of contradictory statements, but can somehow uh, go together and make some coherent sense? Uh, And when we do so, we might what I think we find is that certain doctrines are central. They're, they're foundational for Christian faith. Others are necessary. They're kind of entailed in what it means to be Christian. And then there's some room to agree to disagree in that flexible range. So for many of you all, this will be, um, that's just a recap. Um, if you haven't joined uh, the class that, uh, that I was part of over the last two semesters, uh, I'm going to assume you are at least familiar with some of that that material, but I would recommend going back and listening to that. Um, especially on the biblical plot line and the rule of faith. Last week, we used this framework to to think about uh, how we might make sense of the doctrine of hell. And I presented four views on hell and how this map might help us navigate that. I felt pretty good about the class, and uh, and based on that, I got in the car and asked my wife what she thought, thinking that that would be like you know a little <clears throat> encouragement, and uh, and this is why you know you marry someone who speaks honestly to you. She said, "Yeah, it was good, but uh, and then you know that's uh, something less than encouraging is coming, but but very thankfully she said." More- but, yeah, <laughs> yeah. talk to Hilton. Um, she asks, okay, I, I see how you're getting where you're going, but what, what does the non-scholar do with something like this? Um, because, you know, she has a sense of the biblical plot line and the rule of faith, but applying some of this without uh, certain kind of training is is intimidating or... Um, not as available because you know she doesn't have the library that I have access to, or the time, and, and so forth. So what what does this mean for someone who's not in scholarship? And so, um, I sat her down. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so as I reflected on that, I thought about um, a few a few things. Maybe for those of you who have similar questions, uh, first is that. Uh, ideally, the the bread and butter of our devotional life is not going to be uh, trying to wrestle with complex issues, but for the most part, our reading of Scripture and prayer uh, is going to be uh, allowing, uh, encountering God in Scripture and letting Him shape us into Christ-likeness uh, in our, so that we, we live as Christ in our families, at our jobs, uh, among our neighbors. Uh, so that's the main thing. So discerning you know, how we make sense of hell or... Um, LGBTQ issues, I mean, that has, the, it's not that those are unimportant, but maybe not the bread and butter of, of what we do in our devotional time, um, that instead we're seeking to align our daily life with uh, living uh, as Christ might live. Um, I would. Al- I also thought uh, we have in, in Protestant tradition and in, in Church of Christ uh, heritage, uh, the the assumption that uh, everyone should be able to, um, to any question that comes up, the average person should be able to understand and come to whatever solution. You know, so uh, that the Bible is um, is of such a nature that you don't need any training or scholarship to be able to answer any question. And I think that's a problematic view. Uh, I would say that the Bible, the average person can pick up the Bible and get uh, what's most necessary for for faith and for nourishment, but there are some questions that you just need more than um, than is readily available um, without some some scholarship. And and I as a I think about, for instance, how um, Paul tells us that the Spirit has gifted some to be teachers. And because the Spirit has gifted some to be teachers, what's implied is that is we need teaching. Uh, And so, uh, there are roles for folks like me. Um, That's pretty cute up here. Uh, I'm I'm having trouble now. Uh, Oh, I got a grin, I got a grin. All right. Um, So, it's okay that sometimes our Bible study requires us to to listen to scholars and to realize that, you know, some answers aren't that easy to come by. Um, But... I think that um, for the person who's a non-scholar and they're trying to make sense when it comes to complex issues, uh, I would say that I hope that you're learning to um, evaluate the strengths and weaknesses of the teachers and the claims being made accordingly. So if, uh, if someone's saying, well, you need to believe this about whatever issue it is, you hopefully this is going to train you to say, well, why do you think that? And do you have good reasons? Are you taking into account the rule of faith? Mm-hmm. Are you stepping outside of what the church has been teaching for 2,000 years? Are you trying to make sense of the whole of Scripture? Or are you picking and choosing here? Um, and so part of the, what this is doing is helping... Uh, there's so many voices out there, and not all of them are good, and this is hope, ideally training you to help discern uh, good from bad voices. So... I know that doesn't fix everything, Uh, it leaves, I still am confused about some of these issues, and you may be as well, Uh, but maybe that's beginning to get there, so I'll let you know next week if that satisfied my wife's question or not, Uh, I'll know in about two hours when I get in the van. Um, So today we're going to think about how this map might help us think about um, just war and pacifism. So... Uh, I know you, you all, if you've sat in any classes with Lee Camp, have been exposed to some of this, uh, and, and he is a great thinker. Um, I like this topic for our purposes because it gives us a way to, to think through this. So um, let's start with defining what I mean uh, by these two things. So uh, when I'm speaking of just war, uh, this is the idea that there are certain criteria uh, that when met uh, means that a Christian can legitimately engage uh, in, in war and violent means uh, of, of uh, achieving peace or at least limiting evil. So here are one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, if I can flip a page, eight criteria for waging a just war. Uh, this is coming from this book, uh, Cultural Engagement. I assume he's, he is taking this from the kind of classical criteria. So, a just war um, requires a just cause. A nation must go to war only if it is defending against an unjust aggression. In other words, a nation should not go to war merely to topple another nation's leader, install a preferred political or economic system, or expand its own power. The next criteria is that it should, uh, a just war requires a competent authority. The decision to go to war must be made by the ruler or ruling body that is responsible for maintaining that nation's order and security. A just war must have comparative justice. A nation should go to war only if this war leads to greater justice than refraining from war. A just war requires right intention. A nation may go to war only if the intention is to restore the peace. It may not go to war for the purpose of glorifying itself, enlarging its territory, or humiliating its opponent. Uh, A just war should be engaged as a last resort. A nation must exhaust all realistic nonviolent options, Before going to war, a just war should gauge the probability of success. A nation must determine that it has a realistic hope of achieving victory. Two more here. Uh, A just war should have proportionality of projected results. A nation must determine that the anticipated results of the war are worth more than the anticipated cost. And finally, it should have a right spirit. It should not go to war with anything other than regret, Uh, not for lust of power or delight in humiliating the enemy. And then in war, obviously there are also appropriate conducts. You don't kill non-combatants. Uh, you try to distinguish between them. Uh, you treat POWs with humane decency, and uh, and so forth. So broad brushstrokes here. Uh, of course, part of the issue becomes how do you even determine when all those criteria are met? Um, but that's beyond the scope of our of our discussion today. Just wanted to frame. This is a classical Christian. Uh, view of when it's okay for Christians to engage in war. Uh, The other side of this uh, that has a Christian uh, heritage behind it is pacifism, uh, which is using uh, exclusively nonviolent means to pursue peace and justice. Uh, I I find it really helpful that Lee Camp distinguishes distinguishes between uh, pacifism and being passive. Uh, So this is still active resistance. It's just nonviolent. Um, and in this case, um, we, won't, we won't get into whether nations should go to war, um, but whether Christians should participate with, uh, with their nations when they go to war. Um, because there is a recognition, like in Romans 13 and First uh, Peter, uh, that God uh, does uh, give the sword to, to the governments. Uh, and the pacifist understanding, I think, that would be God uses a broken system to curb brokenness, um, so we're we're focusing in this conversation on Christian involvement in war, um, and for pacifists, uh, some they would say you can still sometimes use force as long as it's non-lethal force. Um, do you want to come in? <laughs> no, all right. I Feel like you're in solitary confinement, uh, looking through the uh, through the glass there. Oh, oh, okay. All right, you're fine. Um, all right. So that's. That's the parameters that we're thinking about. So uh, between just war and pacifism, how might we map this? So that's where we're going today. Um, So we'll start with the plot line of scripture. How do we think about violence um, in light of what we know about, um, as some people have said, this scripture as this six-act play, Uh, which is not to say it's fiction. It's just a a nice way of thinking about the plot line. So uh, at creation, when things are as they should be, Uh, There is uh, not war and violence. Um, When sin enters the scene, almost immediately what you see is an escalation of violence. So, you have one brother kill another brother. And then a couple chapters later, you've got Lamech saying uh, how many guys he's killed. Uh, And then a couple chapters later, God is going to bring a flood because the earth is full of violence. Uh, so, So, prior to sin entering, you don't have this violence. After sin... Um, enters into the scene, you have this escalation of violence. So you see something of uh, sin uh, that leads to the um, this outcome. So we keep that in mind um, as we continue through the plot line. Um, so when we come to Israel, uh, if you've read the story of Israel, you know that God sometimes sanctions violence, whether it's capital punishment uh, or uh, whether it's going to war um uh, against other nations, so there is a place where God uh, even seems to lead His people uh, in war. So as we're thinking about how we make sense of just war and pacifism, we're thinking, okay, violence seems to be not part of how things were meant to be. It seems to be connected with sin. Yet in Israel, God uh, joins His people and um, leading them in war. Uh, next step, there we have Jesus, and obviously we know that Jesus is not engaged in uh, in violence. Now um, you might say, didn't he, you know, drive people out? That's different than killing them. Uh, at most, it's a use of force. Uh, so we might distinguish between the two. Um, and as we think about Jesus and him being the Messiah, we keep in mind that there are other, uh, both before Jesus. Uh, and after Jesus, movements among the Jews that were violent revolutions against those in power. So it wasn't as though uh, this wasn't an option at all for Jesus. Uh, This would have been an option uh, that Jews might have expected, and Jesus doesn't take this option. So we take into account, as we think about uh, are there times to use violence or are there never times to use violence, uh, that Jesus chose uh, the path of uh, of nonviolence as he went to the cross, and that his apostles uh, seem to have all uh, taken that route as well. So, if we're following this plot line, it's a little fuzzy. I say minus Peter on that because he did chop the guy's ear off. Yeah, but that wasn't like a good thing. <laughs> yeah. He didn't get a thumbs up for it. Uh, he got well, but, scolded for it. Well, but I can't say that they all chose that route because his first reaction was pulls out a sword, chops guy's ear off. Okay, so yeah, with the exception of uh, when they seem to have done something contrary to what they should do. How yeah, about that? That's, uh, yeah. that's um, what i Fair, yeah. Point taken. Um, and, and then when we jump ahead to the, uh, to the end, um, Revelation depicts God bringing justice, and it's sometimes in violent terms. So it's not uh, God shows up on the scene and it's all sunshine and rainbows. Uh, God shows up on the scene as a divine warrior, and there is blood on his garments after he has done uh, establishing justice. So, when we map the plot line, it's it's complicated. Violence seems to be something that results from sin. God partners with Israel as Israel brings violence uh, to establish justice. Jesus doesn't take the way of violence. God is going to establish justice, and it's presented in violent terms in the eschaton. So, anyone who just wants to proof text uh, is not doing very good work. Uh, we need more than simple proof text. Um, so, so far, what do we do with this? Uh, we, yeah? Pretend I don't know what Eschaton <clears throat> is. Okay, so end of time. So at the Dang. end. Uh, yeah, so when God comes and sets all things right. Yeah. Um, thank you for yeah, reminding me uh, not to use... Just, uh, there's probably yes. somebody here that didn't know what that
1: is. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah,
0: yeah. Any question you ask, I'll assume you know, but uh, you know the others don't. Uh, so, so we're using this map. We're thinking... Uh, like Christians and so, uh, we sit here thinking, okay, our view must account for how sin opened the door to violence. Uh, Our view must account for how God could sanction violence in the Old Testament and in the eschaton, which now we know what that is. Uh, How Jesus refused the path of violence, as did his apostles most of the time, uh, except when they were seeming to act inappropriately. Uh, And then uh, I skipped the church part here, Where we find ourselves right now is in this in-between time. So this is part of the complexity of the whole thing, is that uh, when Jesus shows up, the kingdom breaks into the present. The kingdom of God, this new era, this new paradigm shift has happened. But it won't fully uh, be uh, established until the end. And so we live in this in-between state. So as we're living in this in-between time, do we live as those who... um, who are uh, acting as though the kingdom is already present, a kind of witness to the world, uh, so that we engage in nonviolence, we act as, as, um, in such a way that's consistent with how life is going to be, or do we take seriously that, uh, yes, God, is, his, his kingdom is broken into the present, but it's not fully here, and so sometimes we have to compromise um, uh, our, uh, our hopes or... Um, Compromise with what we know is coming to happen and where we are now. So, it's messy. It's murky. Uh, when we turn next to, we're following our our map. We look at the biblical plot line, uh, the rule of faith. We won't spend a lot of time on there, uh, but just to as a reminder, uh, what we what we proclaim, um, as we proclaim the Apostles' Creed, is that Jesus suffered, and He was crucified, and He rose again. Um, so. Jesus uh, conquered evil, and we know he conquered evil because it's proved by the resurrection. And he conquered evil by, uh, not, not by inflicting suffering and death, but by taking it willingly upon himself. Uh, so it reminds us that however we, we make sense of this, whether we end up on the just war side or on the pacif- pacifism side, uh, we know that our ultimate hope in establishing peace and overcoming evil cannot be uh, through violent means. That at most, what violent means can do is curb evil. But to actually establish peace and order is going to require uh, and has required the work of God. Uh, so we cannot put our hope, our ultimate hope, in uh, in militaries or in nations. Um, okay, so we keep moving along. Um, we come to uh, the next piece. So we've, we've done north and east. We go south to love of God and love of neighbor. Um Now, this is where, uh, if you remember on our first class, I said we have to be wary of of vague platitudes, Uh, so this is the kind of bumper sticker thing, you know, Jesus said love your neighbor, obviously it doesn't mean kill him. Um, Okay, I get that, but um, also we have to take seriously how love of neighbor shows up in scripture, uh, and how that gets defined, uh, so that we don't define uh, things that come from scripture in non-scriptural ways. So... Where does the passage uh, love your neighbor as yourself come from? Originally, it's yeah, Leviticus. in Leviticus. So Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19, 18. Uh, and that, that's, uh, that adds some complexity to this because uh, as we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves, we see, Leviticus 20, there's places for capital punishment. So that the Old Testament can simultaneously hold together, love your neighbor as yourself, and that there is a place uh, for something like uh, violence as a means of uh, punishment or curbing evil, so the Bible, at least Leviticus, one chapter next to, uh, you know, beside itself, doesn't see a a, uh, a necessary contradiction between loving your neighbor and um, using violence sometimes. Uh, also, uh, continuing to add to the complexity, this is just going to be a complex day. Okay, you're going to leave thinking, hopefully, okay, I can see that there is a place to have respect for both sides of this and for both sides of this to realize that um, that there are extremes that are unhealthy. Um, uh, when Jesus in Luke 6 uh, calls people to love their neighbor as themselves, uh, this is followed uh, by uh, his call to turn the other cheek. So, Leviticus has got this kind of tension. Uh, Jesus follows up this uh, with uh, the call to uh, at least nonviolent retaliation when it comes to uh, the slap. Uh, and, um, and then... Uh, Paul, in in Romans 12, uh, when he talks about sincere love, uh, love must be sincere, he goes on to describe that. Uh, For instance, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Uh, Or a few verses later, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Uh, As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Um, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Uh, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. See the tension in the Old Testament? You see how Jesus uh, expands on that in the New, and how Paul talks about sincere love. No clear answers here. Uh, But what we don't get from this is... um, allowing love your neighbor to be defined, uh, however the culture deems that that should be defined. We think about how we understand love of neighbor in the context that uh, it is given to us in Scripture. Are you following this? So love isn't about positive vibes. That's not biblical language. Um, uh, we just read some Martin Luther King in my, um, in my freshman class, and uh, one of the things they really took from his sermon was he said, love doesn't mean like. Uh, you can love someone who you don't like, uh, as, he's, as Martin Luther King Jr. is calling people, uh, to practice nonviolent resistance, to love their enemy, uh, even if it's people they don't like. So anyway, we, we think of love in, in biblical terms. And now, now we'll get to, um, to the final part that will take most of our focus, would be the coherency of Scripture. Uh, so here we're asking, is there a way to bring the complexity... Of the biblical witness uh, into some sort of coherent um, uh, voice. Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is a way to take the complexity of the of the of the biblical witness and lead us to uh, a couple options: uh, a well nuanced just war theory and a nuanced pacifism, as I'll get to. But uh, I want to show you that, so you can say, oh, I think Strahan is, is doing what he's saying he needs to do, or, you know, I think Strahan is cheating. He's skipping some points here. Um, so, four things, uh, four voices in Scripture that we might consider uh, to listen to on the issue of are there times when Christians can engage in violence or not? Uh, so, I'll briefly consider the Sermon on the Mount, those teachings about turning the other cheek, um, the um, presence of soldiers, centurions, and uh, in, um, in the New Testament, uh, Paul's teaching in Romans 13 uh, about um, the state wielding the sword. You get a similar thing in First Peter 2. Uh, and the violent imagery associated with Christ's return in Revelation 19. Um, as we, as we try to be, um, yeah, critical thinkers about all this. Just. Is there a nuance between us being violent and God being violent? Well, so that's what we're going to get to. Okay. Yeah, so um, this is what we're going to wrestle with is, um, well, see if I answer your question, yeah. Uh, So what I'll do is with each of these, I'll say here's how someone from the just war perspective might make sense of this, and here's how someone from a pacifist position might make sense of this, which will bring us, uh, you'll see, you'll hear some of that. So when we get to the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, and Jesus calling people to turn the other cheek, uh, and so forth, uh, does this mean that Christians should never engage in violence? So, a just war um, position might sound something like what C.S. Lewis says in his essay, Why I'm Not a Pacifist. Uh, this is in his uh, book, it's a collection of essays, The Weight of Glory, which I would recommend reading. Uh, whether you agree with it or not, he's a good thinker. So, here is, here is a few paragraphs from C.S. Lewis on how uh, he makes sense of the Sermon on the Mount uh, in such a way that does not lead him to pacifism. Um, The whole Christian case for pacifism rests uh, on certain utterances such as, resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. I am now to deal with the Christian who says this is to be taken without qualification. I need not point out, for it has doubtless been pointed out to you before, that such Christian is obliged to take all the other hard sayings of our Lord in the same way. So... If you're following, he's saying, look, if you're going to apply rigidly, turn the other cheek in such a, um, a rigid way, uh, then you also need to apply, give to everyone who asks you in such a rigid way with no nuance. Uh, and he says, we don't do that, so that should be a clue maybe that, that there might be implicit exceptions here. Um, I think the text, turn the other cheek, means exactly what it says, but with an understood reservation in favor of those obviously exceptional cases, which every hearer would naturally assume to be exceptions without being told. That is, insofar as the only relevant factors in the case are an injury to to me by my neighbor and a desire on my part to retaliate, then I hold that Christianity commands the absolute mortification of that desire. No quarter whatever is to be given to that voice within us which says, he's done it to me, so I'll do the same to him. But the moment you introduce other factors, of course, the problem is altered. Does anyone suppose that our Lord's hearers understood him to mean that if a homicidal maniac attempting to murder a third party tried to knock me out of the way, I must stand aside and let him get his victim? I, at any rate, think it impossible they could have so understood him. I think it equally impossible that they supposed him to mean that the best way of bringing up a child was to let it hit its parents whenever it was in a temper, or when it had grabbed at the jam to give it the honey also. I think the meaning of the words was perfectly clear. "...insofar as you are simply an angry man who has been hurt, mortify your anger and do not hit back. Even one would have assumed that insofar as you are a magistrate stuck by a private person, a parent struck by a child." And he goes on uh, in this vein. Um, "...war was not uh, what the average Jew would have been thinking. Uh, The frictions of daily life among the villagers were more likely to be in their minds." So this, I'm not saying C.S. Lewis is definitively right here. I'm saying this is how someone uh, is trying to honor the voice of Scripture... Um, and still uh, not here, turn the other cheek as um, leading them to pacifism. Uh, Whereas the pacifist might say, no, the principle behind this of nonviolent retaliation extends, Um, and uh, you see this as Jesus embodies it, as his apostles typically embody it, um, and with the resurrection, how it legitimates it. Uh, So on this case, um, the just war person has more explanation uh, to show why. Uh, and the pacifists, this is one of their texts that, that probably seems to, to um, more clearly be in line with their position. What about the reference to soldiers and centurions that we get in the New Testament? So, um, soldier comes up, centurions are, um, no, soldiers ask John the Baptist, what must we do to be saved? And he says, be content with your pay and you know, don't take more than you need to, don't shake people down, essentially. But John the Baptist doesn't say and uh, drop out of the military. Um, Or the centurion, I think it's a centurion in Acts, uh, is not told to give up his his military role. So here is where the just war theorists would say, look, this is a kind of text on my side. There is the implicit acceptance here um, uh, that it's okay uh, to be involved, uh, for Christians to be involved in the military. Um, So how might the pacifists understand that? Well, they might say, for instance, well, the implicit expectation is that they would abandon any violent means, um, and in fact, early Christians—you will see—who are in the military, uh, there is evidence of early Christians uh, who will who will um, quit the military, uh, or a pacifist might say these these officers are more, most likely retirees, uh, or they have a police. Well, there are retirees that are hanging around, uh, or they have more of a police function. So uh, they're not they're not engaged in war. They're they're like um, Roman soldiers stationed to help keep local uh, peace. Um, so uh, it's kind of like all right. Sermon on the Mount leans a little bit more towards pacifism, but there's a just war explanation. The presence of soldiers and centurions leans more towards just war, but there is um, a way to make sense of this within pacifism. What about uh, Romans 13, 1 through 6? I'll read this since this is one of those that comes into play a lot. If you're concerned about time, I think I'm doing all right. We're, we're, we're moving all right. So. Um, so here's verses 1 through 6. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no th- authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Um, so you see um, from this, the just war theory, theorists would say, uh, it appears, based on what we get in Romans, and uh, similarly in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, if God ordains governments uh, to bring uh, to help establish peace and live in evil, and they are given the sword for that purpose, if God operates in such a way, um, then it makes sense uh, that Christians can participate with that work of God, um, and uh, the pacifist might say, God sometimes uses broken instruments uh, to do um, to, to curb <coughs> evil, uh, but Christians have a different calling, and and that is certainly the case. Like in um, in uh, in the Old Testament, God will sometimes use Babylon. Uh, to bring punishment on others. Babylon good guys? Absolutely not. Can God use them? Yes. Does that mean that God is thumbs-upping Babylon? No. Uh, it just means that sometimes God uses, um, God can use evil against itself. Um, so, the just war theorist is going to have an explanation and the pacifist will say, yeah, God does that, but we don't join him in that. Uh, that's just him using evil uh, to deal with evil, or best, maybe, a limited good, uh, to bring good, but we are not engaged as kingdom people in limited goods. We are, we are kingdom people. Um, we are 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 bearing witness to a new era breaking in. Finally, um, we get something like Revelation 19, uh, where we get uh, violent imagery associated with Jesus. So. We know Jesus is the lamb that was slain. He goes uh, to the cross willingly. Uh, But the vision in Revelation 19, while it is full of symbolism, still has violent symbolism. So I'll read uh, verses 11 through 16 and 19 through 21. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. If we jump to verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the the fiery lake of burning um, uh, sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So, this is not our typical Jesus picture. Uh, And yet, this seems to be, besides maybe a few um, who would argue otherwise, this seems to be pretty clearly an image of Jesus engaged in establishing justice and bringing punishment um, in ways that uh, have violent imagery. Yes, Revelation is full of symbolism, but we still have to wrestle with what we do with this violent symbolism. So, just war theorists might say something like, if Jesus will bring violent retribution to establish justice at the end, then maybe his followers sometimes need to do that in the in-between time. Pacifists might say, vengeance and retribution belong to God alone. Only he has the right to take life and only he has sufficient justice and knowledge about when and how to do so. Um, so I, I, bring these, these four voices in, um, to, to show that, um, whether it's just war theorists or pacifists, uh, there are thoughtful ways of navigating this, uh, that don't belittle scripture, um, nor do I think you can say that they are just twisting it to make it, it fit uh, their ends. Um, but even an exercise like this, I think what it can do is it can... Um, one, it can help us respect uh, whichever side you fall on. It can respect the other party. And two, it can help uh, whatever side you're on not go into uh, an ungodly territory. Um, so I, I'll talk about that when I get into what might be central, what might be necessary, what might be flexible, and what might be outside. Now, yes? Can I, can I put something in there? Because I can see both sides how you're saying that. Where I have a problem... Leaning more toward the pacifist side is that um, uh, when there is a problem with people who are um, unable to protect themselves, and, and what God and what is talked about in the Old Scripture and in the New, mm-hmm. with the the aliens, the orphans, mm-hmm. the widows, when there is um, when when they are being uh, uh, right un- unduly put down, uh-huh. how I respond to that, how I respect right. that. So, so can, is that a part of this? Yeah, so real briefly right, that, uh, I would I'm, say that the the pacifist would say we don't turn a blind eye to that we right. just engage in nonviolent means of, of establishing peace and justice mm-hmm. and we do so because there was that same kind of oppression in Jesus' time and that was the mm-hmm. route he took. Okay, um,
1: but, but yeah but,
0: so let okay, me pause. Okay. I know I can't get into all that yet. I know, okay, I'm just. Okay. After, but I'd be happy. Let me get okay. through all this, mm-hmm. uh, and then okay. I'll be happy to, right. to stick around. Okay. Um, so uh, I didn't go through the search, the spirit experiences uh, part, because I don't have a lot of space. Uh, but uh, I will say, if we're listening to lowercase t tradition of our ancestors, uh, the nonviolent um, uh, response seems to be uh, the ma- well, it's the only option um, that is recorded of the first three centuries uh, of Christians um, uh, that, that I know of, is they, they don't take the way of violence, they drop out of the military. Uh, on the other side, uh, post-Augustine, it's almost been uh, exclusively um, just war theory. Cross denomination. I, sorry, I got I to keep moving. Cross denomination. Uh, so C.S. Lewis will say, "Look, this is my Anglican tradition points here, Catholic tradition points here with Aquinas, Presbyterian tradition points here, uh, and so there might be some peppered exceptions, but for the most part, it's got um, 1,500 years of uh, cross uh, of tradition behind it, which is which is kind of weighty." Um, so let's do the central, necessary, flexible, and outside, and then um, I'll stick around, or maybe I'll have a couple minutes for questions. So central, we have to take seriously that there is a holy, loving, just God, that He conquered evil by taking on flesh, dying, and rising again, and one day He will complete His defeat over sin and establish justice and peace. This is our framework. We don't, we don't um, budge on this. Um, any view we have that doesn't make that makes God less than holy, less than just, or that He is not going to establish. Um, uh, things in the right is not Christian, so what 's necessary for us? Uh, clearly it 's necessary that we live as disciples of Jesus that whether you 're a just war theorist uh, or a pacifist, uh, they both agree that you avoid uh, retaliation for uh, vengeance sake. Uh, there might be a place to do to engage uh, in violence for uh, justice and peace, but not just for vengeance um, that uh, because we know that Jesus overcame evil um, through uh, the crucifixion, um, and that was his means. He didn't set up a military victory. He didn't, um, or military. Um, he didn't set up an army, uh, but he established it by taking on evil and dying. That our ultimate hope has to be uh, in God setting things right, and that even uh, the just war theorist who says there is a time recognizes that violence. Uh, Is ultimately going to at best uh, limit evil or promote some good, uh, but it is not going to be uh, that which can bring, can usher in the kingdom in its fullness. Only God can do that. Uh, So when you hear things uh, from politicians like America is the hope of the world, that is heresy. Uh, Jesus is the hope of the world. Uh, America might ought to play a positive role in promoting the good but they cannot establish peace and justice. Only God can ultimately uh, do that in its fullness. Where might we be flexible? Well, clearly I think that there is a place for both just war and pacifism, but they both need to be properly nuanced. Um, uh, just war uh, needs to be applied. If, if you're going to be a Christian who believes the just war theory is okay, uh, then you should say this needs to be done with integrity uh, and with the discernment of the church. Not a kind of, well, our nation's at war, I'm on board. Um, that, that, um, that we follow the discernment of the spirit in the church about this more than the discernment of our government uh, in this. Um, so I think that we too quickly um, might assume that America always by default engages in just war. And I think we need to say, let's think about this. Sometimes it may be, sometimes it may not be. I don't know enough details to say, uh, but we at least need to not just uh, default there. We are Christians first, um, uh, Americans, patriots second. Um, and pacifism, uh, when um, properly uh, nuanced, there is a place for it among Christians, uh, but it can't be done in, uh, in a spirit of avoidance, uh, but must be coupled with an active pursuit of peace and justice. So what would be outside, then, in all this? Well, obviously denying what's central. Uh, or ignoring our call to live as disciples, engaging in retaliation, putting our hope where we shouldn't put our hope. Um, where might the flexible range be broken? Uh, I would say the flexible range is broken when uh, we uncritically engage in war, if you're a just war theorist. Or if you're a pacifist, the flexible, um, the flexible range is broken when it leads to apathy uh, and uh, allowing others to do the dirty work. Um, uh, But uh, a pacifism that is robust and pursuing justice and taking on the way of the cross is absolutely Christian. And I think a just war that is done with integrity along with the discernment of the church can also be seen as Christian. Um, So there uh, there is my no perfect answer, but hopefully this is training us, uh, to think like Christians in and, um, and complex issues. Um, come up with questions might be easier at this point. Um, otherwise, yeah, see you all uh, next Sunday where we'll keep this difficult stuff